studying, we skipped last week, but we've been studying the five doctrines that were the basis of the Protestant Reformation that began half a millennium ago, 500 years ago. We've looked at four of them, Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And so we're left with grace alone. And I left this one for last because I want to move from this uh, series into the next one in the series on Amazing Grace. Uh, this series on Amazing Grace I've done here before. As a matter of fact, the sermon I'm going to preach this morning, I preached on February the 14th, 2016, exactly five years ago. So I'm sure you guys all remember it. Uh, but I was asked to do this uh, uh, series again, mainly so we can get it on the tape and uh, it can be used that way. But it's about grace, a series on grace. You know, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We learn about it in the scripture alone. And the goal is always for the glory of God alone. That's the authority for teaching in this scripture is what God's word says. First Peter says, 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, grace is not easy to understand. And it's not the normal way of thinking. The more common belief is that God helps those who help themselves. The Jonathan Edwards said it very bluntly about our salvation. He said the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's what we contribute to it. God does everything else. In 2001, Reader's Digest asked Muhammad Ali what his faith meant to him. This was, of course, after he had uh, converted to Islam. And uh, he replied, It is a ticket to heaven. One day we're all going to die, and God's going to judge us, our good deeds and bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. And you know, that's what a lot of people believe. That's what a lot of Christian people believe. People who, who, who've grown up in our churches think that we, if if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we're going to go to heaven. But the Bible teaches this amazing thing called grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's called the Baptist anthem, as a matter of fact, because we like to sing it. We, you know, it, it, it's a it's a great him that we sing because it's a a great grace that we have amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see amazing grace what does it mean do we understand it can we grasp it do we understand the importance of it for our faith During a British conference many years ago, 
on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any belief, was unique to the Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibilities. You know, the incarnation is a fundamental belief of our faith that Jesus became flesh, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. But you know, there are other religions that have different versions of God's assuming and appearing in human form. Even resurrection, which is, is the base of, of our whole salvation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are other religions that have an accounts of returning from death. And so these theologians, these scholars were debating what might be different about the Christian faith that's unique to the Christian faith. And the debate went on for some time, and then C.S. Lewis came into the room. What's all this commotion about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. C.S. Lewis didn't miss a beat. He said, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Because the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhists have an eightfold path to heaven. The Hindu have the doctrine of karma. The Jewish have the Mosaic covenant that they keep, the the Mosaic law. And the Muslim has a code of law that they keep. And each of those offers to them a way of earning the approval of God. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. It's grace. It's free. The word grace is found 122 in 122 verses in the Bibles. Eight times in the Old Testament. The rest in the New Testament. It's a New Testament word. As each one, Peter says, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter calls grace the manifold grace. Manifold literally means many-colored. Every other place in the New Testament where this Greek word is found, it's translated various. Various. There are various diseases. There are various impulses. There are various lusts. There are various miracles. There are various trials. There are various teachings. Peter says there's various grace. There's a manifold grace. Manifold is is like the the facets on a diamond or on a prison where you, you turn it and every way you turn it, it looks different. And so there's God's grace in salvation. But, you know, grace doesn't stop in salvation. There's God's grace in living the Christian life. There's God's grace in our attitudes. There's God's grace in our actions towards others. There's God's grace in our trials and tribulation. There's the grace of God versus legalism. You know, all of those are manifestations. There are many manifold ways of looking at grace. And when you understand grace, it'll have a major effect on our lives. Because if you understand grace, you gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts to you and to others. 
When you understand grace, you'll spend less time and energy critical of and concerned about other people and their choices. When you understand grace, you will become more tolerant. You will become less judgmental. And understanding grace helps you take a giant leap towards maturity in the Christian life. <clears throat> so let's, uh, let me ask the question, why do we need grace? Is there really something wrong with the human race? What the Bible says about us differs than what our cultural humanism wants to say about us. Humanism teaches that everybody's okay, we, we just need to reform. And we've seen that this summer and, and into this fall. All of this social awareness, anti-racism messages, they're basically humanistic attempts to convince people that they need to change. We need to, we need to make a difference. We need to be different than we are. We need to do something to be different. And they're calling on people to reform and to change their ideas. But the Bible says that's the way we are as humans. That's why after all the years of progress that we've made, we still have problems. The Bible says humankind, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We can't help it. We're dead. And when you're dead, you can't make yourself alive. In Romans 2, Paul says it this way. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. That was the racism of their day, Jews and Greeks. He says, he says We're all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who do good. There is not even one. And then over in the next chapter he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And that's our problem. Our problem is not that we need to reform. Our problem is that we need to understand God's grace. God's grace for me and God's grace for you, and God's grace for our country, our world, our nation. In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in, in your sin. You, you had sinned. You, you had contributed the sin that Jonathan Edwards said that you contributed in order to meet grace. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. Verse 2, he says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, You're walking with the world and the devil. And then in the third thing, he says, Among, among them too, verse 3, We formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And the mind. We were truly sons of disobedience. We were truly children of wrath. And folks, that's the biblical description of our current situation. And we're not going to change it through reformation. We're not going to change it through communication. We are not going to solve it 
by reforming ourselves enough to, to make a difference. But there is a good word from the Bible about it. Listen to the next verse in Ephesians. Verse 4. You know, Paul didn't leave people dead in trespasses and sins. Here's what he says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's verses 4 through 7 in Ephesians 2. And what did he say? He said, he made us alive with Christ. He said, he raised us up with him. He said, he seated us in the heavenly places. And for the reason to show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. We all just need to remember that. We need to understand. I'm going to say this again. To show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. I wish it was written here. It's not. But let's just say that together, one word at a time. I'll say the word and then you say it. To show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. That's what God's grace is. Jacob Wetterling was 11 years old when he was abducted by a stranger on a lonely Minnesota road. His brother Trevor and his best friend Aaron were with him when he was taken. He was taken by a, a, a man and put into a van. And there was no word for him for years. The, the interesting thing, I, when I used this illustration back in 2016, seven months later, after I used that in February of uh, 2016, the authorities solved the mystery of Jacob Wetterling. They found the man who had abducted him and he took him to a place and they uh, were able to, to dig up his body. And uh, the mystery was finally solved 27 years after it happened. But the illustration is still good because the illustration is about what happened 10 years Later, after he was abducted, Reader's Digest printed a story about him. And their desire, they were hoping that someone would see and recognize the picture and know about Jacob's whereabouts. And it showed pictures of what he might look like when he was 27, 21 years old. He was 11 when he was taken. And, you know, it was a, it was a haunting article when, when you read it. And in the article, they interviewed Jacob's family. And Jacob's family said they were afraid that he might not want to come home because he was ashamed of what he might have had to do to survive. And he says that's one of the many questions we have to ask ourselves. Maybe he's afraid to come home. But his mom and dad, Patty and Jerry, said this, nothing could have happened that could alter their love for their son. Patty says, these are the words we want Jacob to hear. We love you, Jacob, now as much as ever. 
wherever you are, whatever has happened, whatever you've had to do, never doubt how much we love you. Call us or come home so we can begin to build new memories. Folks, that's right out of God's playbook. That's God's message to us. I love you as much as I ever did. Wherever you are, whatever's happened, whatever you've had to do, never doubt how much God loves you. Call us. Come home so we can begin to build the new memories. That's God's undying conditional love. God knows what we've done. He knows where we are. And yet, His voice is tenderly calling, Come home. Come home. All you who are weary, come home. And so that brings us to to the real meaning of grace. It's in Ephesians 2, still, in verse 8. It says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. You know, there are some misconceptions about grace. In the 5th century, Augustine, St. Augustine in the 5th century, fought a battle with a monk called Pelagius. The British monk was upset by Augustine's teaching about grace. He said, if, if we believe this teaching about grace, and Augustine's teaching about grace is the teaching that we believe today, he said, if we believe that, It gives Christians an excuse for not obeying God. Pelagius believed that if God commanded something, then humans were naturally, apart from any grace, able to do it. And he believed it was possible because Adam's sin had only affected Adam. All human beings are born in the same state in which Adam was born, capable of either obeying God or disobeying him. And if they obey God, their good works merit salvation. If not, they deserve God's punishment. Have you heard that before in this message? That's exactly what Muhammad Ali said. That's exactly what we hear people teaching and thinking about the Christian faith all the time. It's a strong belief in our world today, even among religious people, that Our good works can merit salvation, and if we don't do them, we deserve judgment. Listen to some of these quotes from religious leaders, not evangelical Christians. One of them says, Grace is granted to men proportionately as they conform to the standards of personal righteousness. In other words, you earn your grace. That that just doesn't make sense. You earn your grace. This one comes from the the Mormon church. The elect of God comprise a very select group, an inner circle of faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are the portion of church members who are striving with all their hearts to keep the fullness of the gospel in this life so that they can become inheritors of the fullness of the gospel rewards in the life to come. They earn their grace. In salvation, Jesus bought back for us what Adam lost. This is Pelagianism from, you know, in in the 20th century, 21st century. In salvation, Jesus bought back for us what Adam lost. 
nothing more, nothing less. He died not to give us eternal life, but to give us a chance at eternal life. Jesus made the down payment on your salvation. You are responsible to make the installment payments. You guys glad I don't preach that? Amen. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that grace makes up the difference between what we need and what we achieve. Because that's not the meaning of grace at all. Salvation is by grace. Paul in Ephesians 2 has said nothing about man's part in the process of salvation. Here, here's what he, he attributes it to. It was God's mercy, God's love, God's grace that made salvation possible. It was God working that made us alive and raised us up and made us sit together with Christ. Truly, salvation is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And some understand this phrase, not of yourselves, to refer to faith. And the faith isn't yours, but it's given by God. But, but the meaning of the verse is, salvation is not of yourself. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are not saved by works of merit, whereby we earn salvation. It is by faith, trusting in God. We receive it by accepting what God has given to us, not by working for it. You know, there, there are a lot of uh, illustrations that we could use to um, illustrate that right out of the Bible. I'm, I'm going to get a chair to sit down. Sorry. Oh, sorry, folks. I just can't stand up anymore. I have. One of the one of the illustrations that we find in the Old Testament comes out of the life of David. And in my opinion, it's the greatest illustration of grace that there is. And it obscure it involves an obscure man with an almost unpronounceable name. Mephibosheth is his name. And I'm just guessing that I'm even saying that right. Mephibosheth. It's a beautiful story. There was an interlude between the wars and the land. And David was spending time thinking about his past and all the blessings that were his. And as he did that, David was thinking about his love for his friend Jonathan that had died in battle with his father and about Jonathan's father, Saul, David's predecessor as a king. And while reflecting on those two guys and the impact they had in his life, David remembered a promise he had made. He pondered it and then he dressed it. And then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Actually, it's a rather unfortunate translation into the English because kindness kind of smacks of uh, a soft tenderness. In other words, could I, could I just be kind? Could I send him a gift? Could I, you know, could I send him flowers? Is there anybody that I could show kindness, kindness to? 
But what David was expressing was much deeper than that. And the original Hebrew word that's used there could be, perhaps should be, rendered grace. Is there anyone that I may show grace for Jonathan's sake? And grace, as we've just talked about, is the positive and unconditional acceptance of another person. It's a demonstration of love that may be totally undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. So David ponders, is there anyone in this entire area to whom I might show forth that kind of positive acceptance and demonstrate that kind of love? And, and I think it's, it, it's notable that he asks, is there anyone... He doesn't says, is there anyone qualified? Is there anyone worthy? He says, is there anyone, regardless of who there are, is there anybody still living who could be the recipient of my grace? An unqualified acceptance based on unconditional love. Well, they identified somebody. David says, is there anybody? Uh and this counselor answers, yes, there is. Uh, was a, one of Saul's servants. Says, yes, there is. But he's crippled in both feet. David's response is beautiful. He moves right along. He says, where is he? He doesn't say, how bad is he crippled? What caused him to be crippled? How come he's crippled? What did he do to be crippled? He just says, where is he? Where is he located? And guys, that's the way grace is. Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done that deserve love. Grace operates apart from the response or the ability of the individual. Grace is totally one-sided. God's grace is God giving himself in full acceptance to someone who does not deserve it and can never earn it and will never be able to repay it. And that's what makes David's story of Mephibosheth so memorable. A strong and famous king stoops down and reaches out to one who represents everything that the king is not. Now there's more to the story. Since the accepted custom was for new kings to kill everyone from a previous dynasty... Such individuals were either exterminated or they hid themselves for the rest of their lives. And basically, that's what Mephibosheth had done. He had hid himself away in a desolate part of Palestine, a place known as Lodabar. It's on the other side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem, way north across from Galilee, in what is today the country of Jordan. He was so far away from David and Jerusalem as he could get and still still be in Palestine. But there was a servant of Saul named Ziba who knew where he lived, who knew where he was. Now the last thing Mephibosheth wanted was to see an emissary from the king knock on his door. He was hiding, but that's exactly what happened. We don't know how old he was. But he had his own family because we read later that he had a young son named Micah. 
And he hears this knock at the door. And after answering the knock at the door, Mephibosheth is looking into the faces of David's soldiers who say to him, the king wants to see you. He probably thought this is the end. They found me. So they took him to Jerusalem. They took him right into the very presence of the king himself. This is, this is a beautiful scene. If you can just look at it in your mind and, and see what's happening. They take Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, and they bring him into David. And Mephibosheth fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. What a moment it must have been. This frightened man, thinking his days were up, throws aside his crutches and falls down before the king who has all the rights, the sovereign rights over his life. Mephibosheth had no idea what to expect and I suspect he expected the worst. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I surely will show grace to you. Not for anything you've done, but for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have felt at that moment? Expecting a sword to strike his neck? He hears these unbelievable words from King David. I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and saw that happen. David looked at him and said, Oh, my friend, you're going to have a place of honor like you've never had before. You become a member of my family. You will eat at my table. And, and I, I, I want to read the rest of the story. I'm reading in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8. Again, Mephibosheth prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, this is what he says, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. You shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So God, or David just gave Mephibosheth, Ziba, his 15 sons and his 20 servants, and all the land that had belonged to Saul. He just gave it all to him. And he didn't do anything for it. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in the house of Ziba became servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Guys, that's a fantastic account of grace. It's a perfect illustration of what God has done for us. And, and you read that and you just get, yes, across your face. Yes, that's what grace is. Do you understand it? 
Picture what supper was like at David's table. The meal is fixed and the dinner bell is rung and along come the members of the family and their guests. Amnon, who was clever and witty, comes to the table. Joab, one of the guests, is muscular and masculine and attractive. He's a general, his skin bronzed from the sun. He, he walks tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Then there's Absalom, who's told us doesn't have a blemish from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. There's no blemish on Absalom. And there's Tamar, the beautiful, tender daughter of David. And probably this is stretching it, but later on, Solomon. He's been in his study all day, and he slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. And everybody's there, but there's still a place. And then you hear it. Clump, clump, clump. Here comes Mephibosheth with his crutches, hobbling along. He smiles Umbly joins the table, takes his place as one of the king's sons, and the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Folks, that's what God does for us. Demonstrating his love and forgiveness that we can't earn, don't deserve, and will never be able to repay. That's grace. There's something freeing about grace. It takes away all the demands and it puts it all on the response of God's shoulders as he comes to us and says, You're mine. I take you just as you are. Just as I am. Crutches in everything. All of my hang-ups. All of my liabilities and everything. And it will take eternity for us to adequately express what this truth means that He chose us in our sinful and rebellious condition and in grace took us from a barren place, gave us a place at His table, and in love allowed His tablecloth of grace to cover our sin. I know what you are. I know where you are. I know what you've done. I know where you live. Won't you please come home? Please come home so we can start making memories together. Now I'd like to just leave the story right there, but there are objections to that grace. Some of you may have reservations. You know, the old Pelagian arguments are still around. Some say, but that means if I, can do, if I can't do anything to get salvation and nothing to lose salvation, I can live like I want to and never worry. That's not the teaching of the Bible. That's not what saying that grace means. Just two scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Having received grace, we walk gracefully. 2 Corinthians 5.17 if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for finding me when I wasn't looking me. For loving me when I wasn't worthy. 
for making me yours when I didn't deserve it. Thank you, Father, for grace. It really is amazing. Brother Mike.